Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, I just wanted to have a quick chat with you before you listen to the show, a slightly different start. And you're probably wondering why is that happening? Well, this is our first live show. It was filmed October 3rd at the New Giant Dwarf. It was our first show like this. And uh, I had a couple of goals that I was sort of aiming for when I was putting this together. One was I just wanted to put together a really entertaining show that was fun for everybody, for the people on stage and for the people off stage. And the other goal was uh, I wanted to learn something from it. I wasn't sure what I wanted to learn, but I knew that if I kind of kept my attention focused, I'd learn something from the whole process. So uh, the first part I thought was a success. I thought all the guests were wonderful. I thought the audience was fantastic. We had a really good time. Uh, We tried some things that I think all worked in their own way. Uh, For those of you who remember uh, Beck Melrose being on the show, we were talking about our trophy night idea and that kind of gets a bit of a run because i firmly believe you just learn more from doing rather than having too much planning, especially in live performance. So uh, we tried a few things uh, and I was really happy with the the texture of the show. And yeah, I just think everyone had a good time. So that is, that's paramount when putting together this kind of stuff, especially for people coming out of the COVID situation, you know, maybe they hadn't seen much. So taking a roll of the dice it's it's a it's a real honor and it's a privilege. So you gotta reward it. And the way you can reward it is just make a, a fun show. Uh secondly, I did feel like I learned something and what I learned was I think I would like to do more of these. I hope you guys would like more. I think it would be fun to be continuously making these shows and still having the regular podcast, but then also having this regular night where we can all get together and hang out, especially as we hopefully get closer to the COVID situation being over. Surely we are closer to that, don't you think? But it was honestly one of my favourite nights of the year, so I'd like to build on it and I'd like to try new ideas. I, I feel like it's a solid concept where you understand, I guess, the the integrity of the show 
But within that, I feel like it could kind of be anything on any given night and keep it fresh in that regard. So it was definitely one of my favourite nights of the year. And uh, look, uh, I won't ramble on for too much longer, but uh, before you listen to this, if if you didn't see it online or you didn't see the show in person, I just want to uh, explain the setup on the stage. There was a big TV screen that had Cal Wilson's character, Adele, who was coming to us from Melbourne, where she's in lockdown. So when you're hearing her, she's it's just Adele's face up really close, uh, speaking in that hilarious monotone. And in a way, she's almost like our uh she's like a adjacent to the host as it were because she's introducing all of the guests and she's also just really funny we've had such a long relationship (laughs) she really knows how to go after me and it's hilarious so if you're wondering how that's playing out essentially it's just a screen on the stage and i also don't like to give spoilers but hang around for our marvel after credit which is um (laughs) <laughs> it was funny in the room and online, and I hope it still translates. Uh, and anyway, uh, I hope you enjoy this podcast. If you do, please reward us with a nice review on Apple Podcasts, etc. We'd love to uh, have you even share this podcast with like-minded people. And you know what? If you missed the live show, hopefully you can make the next one, which I'm hoping will be maybe in about six-ish weeks. Maybe we'll do an atheist Christmas party to finish off the year. That sounds like fun. I'm going to write that down. All right, for now, enjoy the show. Tonight's podcast is not only our inaugural live show, but it's the first podcast I'll be recording wearing pants. My name is Justin Hamilton, and be grateful I remembered that tonight you can see me on Big Squid. Thank you very much for coming down tonight. This is our first live show, or as my friends have been disparagingly referring to it, as uh, my desperate attempt for company on a Saturday night. So this is definitely uh, some nice company. It is good company, to be honest, because, uh, you know, during the pandemic, people were asking me, you know, how are you going with isolation? And I'm like, I'm a 48-year-old man who lives by himself in Sydney. Like, you call it isolation, I call it Thursday. So... (laughs) There was a moment where I actually realised that I was spending too much time alone. There were two things. One was I would see someone, because I hadn't seen anyone for a long time, and they would ask me the simplest of questions, and I would just talk at them. Like, this poor woman (laughs) made the fatal mistake of saying to me, oh, how are you? And I was like, oh, I'm really good. I just watched the Back to the Future trilogy. I'd never really watched it before. I'd seen the first movie when I was young, but then I got a little bit older when the second and third one came out. By that stage, I was getting into things like The Godfather and The Untouchables, so I never saw those. So I went back and I watched them, and I'd forgotten. What's going on with the first one? There's a lot of motherfucking going on in that one, isn't there? And then I watched the second one, and I thought, this is really complicated but kids seem to understand it so I really enjoyed that and the third one's kind of like this geriatric love story and I thought it was quite sweet so watching it you know what I think it's an underrated trilogy and she looked at me and she said that's really nice but would you like a coffee I said yes please I'll have a long black 
And I moved to the side, and she served the eight people behind me. So, and the other one uh, moment where I realised I was spending way too much time alone was, uh, you know, I didn't see anyone for like nine, ten weeks, and I walked out onto Elizabeth Street in Surrey Hills. It's a main street. And I walked out, and in the middle of the road was a dead rat with three crows and two pigeons and an ibis, and they were just having a little snack on the rat. And I walked out, and as I walked past them, they all looked at me as if to say, what the fuck are you doing here? I I got really offended. It's like, I fucking live here. Like, I pay rent, you pieces of shit. Look at you. Enjoy your rat. Enjoy your rat. I'm a grown-up. I'm a human man. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go and get some real food. I got some two-minute noodles. Anyway, JobKeeper, it doesn't go far. But anyway... This is good. So what we're going to do for anyone who is a long-term listener of Big Squid, a long-term listener, it started last year, but you know what I mean. <laughs> if you know, uh, if you're a long-term listener, thank you for coming along. There's someone in Florida who's gotten up at 5am to watch this, and I apologise for everything. So good luck with that. Uh, if you're new, this is a podcast that celebrates art and entertainment in all its forms. We have a wonderful lineup of people. We have uh, my good friend Ben Elwood is going to be coming out. We have the brilliant Richard Feidler. I was allowed to have two Becks on the show, so I picked two, uh, Beck Dana Muno and Beck Melrose, and Georgia Mooney's going to have some music for us. Now, we're meant to have Cal Wilson, but she couldn't make it, but a friend of hers, Adele, got in touch with me, and Adele told me she was going to be on the show from Melbourne, and if you don't know Adele, when she tells you she's going to be on... She's fucking on. So let's check in with Adele in Melbourne. Good evening, everyone. My name is Adele, not the cheerful singing one. What a pleasure to be greeting you from lockdown in Melbourne. People here have really let themselves go, but I've managed to stay on top of things. Hamo, as he says people call him, has asked me to inject a little bit of showbiz vibrancy into tonight. So here I am. First up, Hamo and a friend will be discussing the films of Christopher Nolan. Christopher Nolan, of course, brought us such films as Inception, Memento and Tenet, all very highly regarded, if you consider confusing to be a compliment. (laughs) Christopher Nolan, of course, also gave us the movies Batman Begins, Batman Goes On for Longer Than Expected and Will Batman Ever Shut Up? Not if Hamo has anything to do with it. Also, ironically, Batman has exactly the wrong mask for coronavirus. Anyway, to join Hamo discussing Christopher Nolan at interminable length, please welcome to the stage wonderful Ben Elwood. There's nothing better than having that moment where you go, ah, yeah, no, I'm a cliché. I saw a trickle of blood leaking out of your ear when she criticised Christopher Nolan. No, I'm not that bad. No, no, you're not that bad. No, but maybe a little bit bad. Like, anyway, like, don't even start me. Uh, Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's the noise I wake up to every morning. (laughs) I just step up out of bed and it's like, which world am I in? Oh, it's mine. Mm. Boo. So it's uh, exciting to have you here, Ben. It's exciting nice to be here. This is the first time I've been on stage in over a year. Unbelievable. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. I don't even know what you've been missing out on. Yeah, yeah. a few a few woos. Like, yeah. you're, you, you've got your 
fifth trip from Alcoholics Anonymous. So it was like, oh, he's back. I got out and now you've pulled me back in. Yeah, I know. And so uh, I'm curious, have you been... Like, I know you've seen a couple of movies mm-hmm. uh, since uh, the restrictions were lifted, yeah. but have you, how often have you been going to the cinema? Uh, I've been to the cinema three times since the restrictions got lifted, and each time was to see Tom Hooper's Gonzo masterpiece, Cats! Yes, right. <laughs> three times. It was my tenth time last week, but anyway, we'll get to that. Oh, man. <sighs> like, I have genuinely never respected you more. I, I love it. The so, only one? No, but... Can you explain for everyone mm. the the genesis of the love for cats? Okay, so has, well, just first off, has anyone in this audience seen Tom Hooper's Cats? <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> it I, did I saw, lose one hundred and fifty million dollars at the box office, so yeah. it's none surprising. I literally saw one hand go, Woo! yeah, like. <sighs> like that. Uh, the genesis of me seeing Cats was, uh, you used to review films. I did. And uh, so you get double passes often. Yeah. And you. Got by the way, don't tell them that I don't do it officially anymore because I keep getting the passes. Okay. Oh, he going, yeah, still reviews films. Yeah. Um, and uh, in December, I got a message from you uh, yeah. saying, hey, I've got two tickets to the premiere of Cats. Yeah. Uh, do you want them? But... But, well, at first I was going to invite you because when I hear of a movie adaption of Cats, yes. the first person I think of is Ben Elwood. And then <laughs> I do love show tunes. And then, purely by good luck, I couldn't go. So I gave you both. And yeah. then what, what was fascinating was you went and then I kept <laughs> checking my phone because normally if I can't make something, Ben will go and he'll send me a text message. Hey, man, thanks. That was great. And I wasn't getting any messages whatsoever. And I was like, what the fuck happened? And I was a bit needy. So I just kind of sent a text to you and uh, Cameron James going, hey, uh, did you end up going? And then it was a torrent <laughs> of words without spaces or punctuation. <laughs> and I thought, holy shit, yeah. what have I done? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you haven't seen Cats, um, it is the most nauseating, horrific, and brilliant thing you will ever see. It's as though David Lynch and Francis Bacon got together and made a film. Uh, None of it makes sense. It's two hours of cats introducing themselves over and over and over again. They have human toes, they have human noses, the feet aren't rendered properly, so they float on the ground. The whole thing is a fucking nightmare and I have never had more fun in the cinema in my life. In my life. Now, what I'm curious about is while you and Cam are in the audience having the best time of your life, what is going on around you? Uh, Do you know in Mel Brooks' The Producers where uh, Springtime for Hitler starts and then it cuts to the audience and they're all just like, like that. It was like that with us in the middle going, like cackling and yeah. puking in our laps and yeah, just generally getting swept up in it. I don't think anyone else enjoyed it as much as we did. So much so that we did an eight-part podcast documentary series investigating cats. It's called Why Is Cats? You should listen to it. Great title. Yeah. Yeah. Why Is Cats? Why Is Cats? You know, the, the, the thing that's really fascinating is because I had no idea about the production yeah. so when I went to see it, and you know like I don't mean to brag, I kind of know how story works and the fact is they just keep fucking introducing cats and they keep introducing them and they keep introducing them and like an hour and a half in I'm like how long does this go like am I at a Daniel Kitson show like what the fuck is about to happen here it's a four hour fucking and they keep introducing them and then it ends it just ends and I've never been happier (laughs) 
You forget to mention it ends with Dame Judy Dench, who right. looks like the cowardly lion, turning directly to camera, breaking the fourth wall, and doing a three-minute monologue to the audience about how a cat is definitely not a dog. And at that moment, my soul left my fucking body. Uh, and I just, like, it's, it's, it's a fucking masterpiece. It's a gonzo masterpiece. I don't even think your soul was returned. <laughs> like, it just left, and you've gone, well, I will just be this husk for the rest of my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm very comfortable with that. So I'm curious, who are your top three actors in Cats? Uh, Idris Elba. Oh, uh, like, so, so can we just stop for a moment? One of the most charismatic and handsome men who ever lived, and you are watching it going, wow, this movie's so good, I am not attracted to Idris Elba. Well, there's a moment in the movie where his fur is the exact same colour as his human skin, and so when he throws his trench coat off in his big number, he looks ostensibly naked, and you never thought seeing Idris Elba naked would make you want to puke so fucking bad. But there you go, he looks deranged, he's got green eyes, he's meowing. None none of that made sense. It's like, I should be completely into this, but I want to poke all four of my eyes out. (laughs) So Idris Elba, uh, Sir Ian McKellen, who is introduced lapping a bowl of milk, going... And then he looks at the camera and goes, meow, 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 meow. Right. And I honestly thought X-Men Last Stand was his nada. But... Well, because the the cast of Cats is divided down the middle by the people that are like, you know, like Jennifer Hudson. uh, You made a comment that made me laugh to this day. Jennifer Hudson sings Memory as though she's forgotten that she's going to be CGI'd into a cat. Uh, And so she's fucking going for it. Going for it. But every time you kind of get lost in the emotion of it, it cuts to Judy Dench going (laughs) like that. Yuck. Uh, So, like, you've got that contingent of the cast that fucking clueless about what they're in. And then the Idrises and the Sir Ians and the Dame Judys that are wholly aware of the the nightmare that they're participating in. There seems to be only one actor who seems to have Worn it as well. Is it Jason? Jason Derulo! Yeah, 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 Jason Derulo. Sorry, I didn't realise that officially that was how you had to say his last that name. That is how you have to say his name. Everyone no, knows completely. that. Completely. No, Jason! I, know. Yeah, and know. It's... I don't even know who he is, other than from Cats. He plays Rum Tom Tugger. But... The cat that likes to fuck. Okay. Oh, he does too, right? Rum Tom Tugger loves to fuck. Mate, he is what is referred to as a fucking cat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Jason Derulo's into it. Um, James Corden, who I'm no fan of at the best of times. What? Uh, no, he uh, seems uh, like someone you'd yeah, be right yeah. into. Oh, I'm going to another celebrity. He's oh. awful. He's everything wrong with this toxic 21st century culture. The worship of celebrity. The, he's just awful. Anyway, he's in it. By the way, that little moment then, that is a glimpse into how Ben and I talk for an hour before we start recording. <laughs> and then we get Why it out of our me? system and then it's straight into me banging on about why people should respect the Dark Knight Rises. Yeah. But anyway, so... <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. James Corden denounced the film. He said, I've never even seen it and I've heard it's awful. And uh, I think that is a putrid shithead thing hey, to do. Hey, back it. Back it, you man. You in it. Yeah, man. And I think that Cats will live on for many, many years as like a Rocky Horror Picture Show yes. or a Tommy Wiseau's The Room type thing. Uh, and so I think uh, Jason Derulo is getting ahead of the curve. So yeah, right. Well, you, so you might not know this, but Ben and Camp have been putting on live shows at the cinema, and that is actually one of the reasons I have been to the cinema in recent times, where you put it on at the Hayden Orpheum. The Hayden Orpheum, the most beautiful cinema in Sydney, Art Deco, 100-year-old cinema, and people are in leotards, dancing up the front. It's just 
It's fucking wonderful. And it is a real uh, return to the beauty of being in a cinema with a group full of people and that catharsis of being with a crowd is yeah. profound. We all have COVID, but it was worth it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. COVID and cat aids. It was great. It was fantastic. Yeah. It, my, it's so funny because my two cinema experiences since <laughs> things have been back have been Tenet and Cats. And Tenet, I just sit there, like, not moving, one bit of sweat dribbling down the side of my head as the volume just hits me in the chest and I feel good about staying alive. And Cats, where you're sitting there just screaming. Yeah. At the screen yeah. with a whole bunch of people. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. It's, it's wonderful. It's so funny to have those two experiences back at the cinema, right? Totally, yeah, yeah. Because I think Tenet, well, I mean, apart from the fact that you can't understand a fucking word they're saying, <laughs> forces you to sit there like, uh, what? What's happening? I don't, I don't get it. Well, uh, whereas, like, yeah, no, it's you know, fine. It's an artistic choice. Five it's not... times. That's what you have to do, <laughs> yeah. like I have, and I understood yeah. everything. Yeah, so gonna, why yeah. isn't everyone else yeah. like me? It's the film that's going to save cinema. Um, uh, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> well, it's definitely not James Bond. Did you see Bond is being pushed back to oh, really? next year? Yeah, that's the death knell, mate. That's, really? Yeah, that's the death knell right yeah. there. Well, I, 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 I appreciate the juxtaposition of having to sit there reverent, reverentially, because that is my mode in the cinema. Yes. I don't even like people that eat Smith's crisps in the cinema. I find it to be sacrilegious, and I find it to be like, get your fucking crunching and munching out of my fucking auditory yeah. space, please. Yeah. I'm trying to connect with Brad Pitt floating through the vacuum of space. I don't need to hear... <laughs> well, oh, yes. just, it's nightmarish. But, any, but yeah. conversely, to be in a cinema full of people where the point is to yell and sing along and dance and everything is just spectacular. What, uh, what are your favourite moments of being annoyed in a cinema? Do you have, like, a, like as an example, one of my favourite moments was seeing Pulp Fiction back mm. in the day and a woman in front of me when it gets to the last bit with John Travolta turning around <laughs> to her husband really loudly and going, I thought he was dead. Yeah, and I thought you one. have <laughs> not understood any of this film and that is fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My favourite comment that I ever heard in a cinema was I went and saw a movie called Son of Saul. Uh, oh, have you yeah, heard of this movie? Yeah, yeah. Not many people it's saw not... it. Feel good hit of the year. It's set in the um, gas chambers of Auschwitz-Birkenau. Uh, yeah, he saw it in 3D. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it is like as you imagine like really like fucking harrowing you don't buy a ticket to Son of Saul for a good time Uh, and it ends as you would imagine not well and it cuts to black don't don't ruin the ending yeah right (laughs) it cuts to black there's a beat of silence a beat of silence and an older lady behind me goes well that didn't have a very happy ending did it (laughs) oh really my other favourite one was when I saw Toy Story 2 uh, back in the day uh, and there's that great scene where the toys are driving the van yeah. uh, and Woody's on the pedals and Mr Potato Head's on the wheel and yeah. like, woo, it's a great lark and then I heard a guy at the back go, oh, this is lame, as if toys can drive cars. <laughs> That's the moment where the reality of this thing broke apart for you. <laughs> the, the, the toys having a consciousness and life, that was fine but... It's a bridge too far driving a fucking car. <laughs> this movie's bullshit. <laughs> um, well, we should uh, we should bring on our next guest in a second. But you know, on the podcast, when mm. we we've been uh, going back over the Nolan films and we've been talking about whether they'd be better as a TV series, etc. Yes, yes, yes. So I'm dying to know. 
Cats, better as a TV series where we have multiple seasons yeah, right. or no. do you prefer it as a movie? And if it was a TV series, where would you take it? Well, if it was a TV series, you would dedicate a single episode, hour episode to each single character. Oh, yes. That's how you would do it. But Like um, Lost. Like so you'd have flashbacks to when they were kittens. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> this is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The first time he hit the, the cat realised he has a human nose. Uh. Um. <laughs> oh, can, can somebody interrupt just before you answer that question? Can you explain to me why some cats are naked and some cats wear clothes? No, I can't explain why. That's like, I can't explain anything. Like I said, this, has been, like, this movie has consumed the last ten months of my life. I saw it less than a week ago for the tenth or fucking ninth time. And even in that viewing, I'm like, it still makes... No fucking sense. Yeah. Some cats are wearing high top sneakers. Other cats are naked. Like it, no, it makes no sense. But in terms of it being a TV series, no, because y- you can only stand. And I love this movie. I'm yes. one of the very few people that do. Yeah. And even I, towards the end, am like, this just has to fucking euthanize this movie. Yeah. Like, God, this has to end. It has to end. Yeah. I had, like, the, that first time, I honestly had a panic erection for the last 40 minutes. I thought it was not going to end. Obviously, this show's not on Channel 10, but anyway. Uh, but it's but a good yeah. argument for the return to going to the cinema, because Cats is one of those things that if you watch it at home, on your own, on a laptop or whatever, you'd probably turn it off. But uh, in a group where you can kind of hoot and holler and meow and hiss, it's a fucking wonderful experience. And do you, do you have another session coming up? Uh... Not for the foreseeable future. I am done with this for a little while. But right. I know that the Orpheum is going to do monthly screening, so you guys should totally go to it. Yeah, right. Yeah, All right, yeah. that sounds great. Give it up for my good pal, Ben Elwood. <laughs> and uh, why don't we check in and see how Adele's going in Melbourne? Our next guest has his own show on ABC Radio. Yet is still doing this. <laughs> His program is the ABC's most popular podcast and is downloaded more than three million times a month. One million of those is just one elderly lady in Wollongong who can't work out the podcast app on the smartphone that her grandson got her for Christmas, but it's still very impressive. Something to aspire to, Hamo. Anyway, Richard Feidler is here to talk about his new book, which I believe is called... Feidler on the roof. <laughs> if it's not, it should be. Anyway, please welcome to the stage cultural icon Richard Feidler. There we go. Thank you. Hello, Justin. Well, are you kind of inspired to do Feidler on the roof now? I, I am so inspired. It's not a joke I've heard before in my entire really? life. Really? Yeah. It's incredible. How does she come up with ideas like that? It's ideas. It's Ad- powerful. Adele is a creature that is beyond understanding. That's what I love That's about true. it. Um, uh, this is your new book, Doing the Molly Meldrum. Uh, do yourself a favour. And uh, I always appreciate uh, your books for two reasons. One is that I always feel like I'm smarter at the end of it because I always feel like I've learned something. And two, when I'm finished it, I always get so many compliments on how good my arms look because <laughs> these are heavy. That's right. I think you can always judge the quality of the book by its girth, yeah. quite frankly. Um, it's always been my ambition to write a book that's he- big and heavy enough to stun yep. a burglar. And that, that's fucking literature when you write a book yeah. that thick, folks. <laughs> That was like some nerd porn then. Yeah, right. right. Judge a book by its girth, mate. (laughs) Feel it. Feel it, mate. Feel the girth. Uh, um, 
your wife's here and she has just, I just heard her laugh then in a way that was like, I have not heard him talk like that for a while. And, uh, <laughs> so I'm, I'm fascinated. I, I didn't really know a lot about Prague before uh, I started this book. And what I'm a bit fascinated about is that it seems early on there are all these different conquerors who want to come in and make Prague the centre of the world. Like they want to make it important culturally uh, important intellectually. And I wonder, if, why aren't we like that anymore? Like, no one's trying to make a city great culturally. What, what do we, where have we gone wrong from those times? Well, Prague is, is a city, right? It's, we sometimes see it as an Eastern European city when it's not of Central European. And people in Prague, you know, get the shits if you say, oh, you're Eastern European. Where's they go? No, we're Central European. It's closer to London than it is to Moscow. But it means it's a crossroads city. It means that this is a place where which uh, Hitler invaded in the late, late 19, uh, in 1939. Uh, and then after the Second World War, it became a kind of vassal state of the Soviet Union under Stalin. So it's one of those small nations that's forever been surrounded by big and powerful neighbours that come crashing into the place, smashing up the furniture, deporting large parts of the population, sending them off to concentration camps. And yet, despite this kind of highly contingent feel to everyday life there over the centuries, it's built to last for centuries. It's, I think, the most beautiful city in the world. Now, I don't know if people here have been to the city of Prague on their travels and managed to skirt their way around pissed uh, British tourists who are puking into the gutter while you're admiring the majesty and magic of the world's most beautiful city, but uh, you've got to keep your eyes skyward to do so. So, so there's been this, kind of, this, this tension between the, the, the madness of it, the sense of constant upheaval from fascism to communism to democracy and backwards and forwards and other nations running the place... But then there's this sense of permanence and magic to the place. So that's the deepest thing about it. There's the powerful sense of magic, which I felt straight away when I went there for the first time. And, and what inspired you to go there the first time? I went there for the first time during the Velvet Revolution, which was uh, in, in the year 1989. I was playing in a vulgar, stinky comedy group uh, that was based that was based in London at the time. We were doing a London theatre season. I was the watching, Empty Pockets. The Empty Pockets. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah right. that's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And, and this is 1989, this is Europe's year of miracles, where one by one these Stalinist police states were falling under popular revolutions. And first, then the Berlin Wall came down, and I was watching this from London, just sort of longing to be there and, and celebrating and being, to be a witness to history. So as, as soon as I could, when my girlfriend arrived in, to London, we went to Berlin and then we went to Prague, which is a city I'd never been to before, which was swept up in the kind of thrill of a peaceful revolution led by students that overthrew a corrupt and violent police state and replaced the apparatchiks with a hippie playwright, <laughs> a guy called Václav Havel, one of the most completely decent and lovely human beings who'd been a dissident who'd spent years in jail. And now this guy is in Prague Castle and he's made Frank Zappa an advisor. <laughs> yeah. And invited Lou Reed to perform in Prague Castle for him. This was a really heady moment. But you, there was all still of the communist madness of the place that was still in place. Like, Justin, there were stores there that sold just mineral water. Like, different kinds of mineral water from different parts of the Czech Republic, or Czechoslovakia as it was then. And these were sold like medicine for different things that ailed you. Like, oh, buy this mineral water, that's for your rheumatism. Oh, this one, that's for heart disease. And there was a little shop there that sold nothing but, like, uh, like bookmarks and little ex-libris slips for your, for your, uh, your books in your library. It, it, there was something really sweet and poignant about all that. And, and when you were there and all that's happening, do you, do you realise 
completely that you're in a moment that's of historical significance? Or are you, is it something that you kind of look back on and you, you can see it uh, with more clarity? Oh, I felt it in the moment. And there's, there's a story that sort of pertains to that. There was um, a, a, an anniversary while I was there, the anniversary of the death of a young man called Jan Palak. Who, in 1969, Jan Palak was a young uni student who self-immolated at the top of Westminster Square to protest the Soviet invasion. And this was the first time, excuse me, after the Velvet Revolution, where they could legally commemorate his death in Wenceslas Square. So my girlfriend, Josephine, and I went, went, went there to stand around this kind of melted wedding cake of candle wax and notes and what have you. And there were these two soldiers there, these two young soldiers, who came up to us. And they were teenagers, like 19 or something. And they came to me. I had almost no check, but they were saying, pivo, 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 which I know means beer. In Czech, that's one of the four words I completely mastered <laughs> authoritatively while I was there. And um, I went, "Oh yeah, sure, come and drink beer." I thought this would be fun, just to be fun to you know get on get on the the, the piss with a bunch of Czech soldiers. That'd be a hoot. So so we, he was going to me, "Oh, American," and I went, "Oh no, no, Australia." And he was, "Ah, Australia, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide," and I went, "Wow, you know you're." Geography man, that's amazing. And he goes, ah, Australia, SEDC, SEDC, Angus, Angus. And he starts going, meowdy, meowdy, meowdy. He's playing air guitar in the middle of Wenceslas Square, sort of like bunny hopping like Angus Young. And then there was this really creepy guy with a comb over and a briefcase who looked really, he looked like a secret policeman. And he looked at me and went, cut him an og. Cut him an og. Lucky, lucky, lucky. <laughs> and then he leaned over to my girlfriend and went, nice girl, nice girl. So we went back to the Grand Hotel Europa and went to the square in this magnificent sort of art deco palace of a hotel that was all threadbare and run down. It's so beautiful. And we're drinking beer and, and Jan, this young soldier, says to me, Richard, we are friends. And I said, yes, we are. And he said, listen to me, please. Czechoslovakia, Australia... America, Poland, Germany, one world, please, one world. And I said, yes. He says, no, no, listen to me. Czechoslovakia, Australia, uh, uh, Germany, America, one world. And, and at that moment, I, it was a little silly, but for him, his future was coming back to him. It's kind of forgotten, but this was the Cold War, where a nuclear exchange in Europe would have meant him, his friends, the village he came from, Prague itself would have been completely obliterated. And so this moment, this Velvet Revolution, this, this was the end of the Cold War where the spectre of nuclear annihilation was receding and it was receding for me too. Like, I'm of a generation, I'm a Gen Xer and I came out of uh, high school in the early 80s convinced I wasn't going to live to see 30. Yeah. I, I really thought I wasn't going to live to see 30. There was a kind of a new revival of the Cold War in the early 80s and uh, we, we thought we were all going to get killed. Yeah. And when I was at uni, we used to have these conversations in the uni refectory saying, you know... This was at ANU in Canberra. They were going, so if there's nuclear war, will we sort of die a lingering death under a nuclear winter or will, will we be obliterated? Are, are we a nuclear target? And they go, oh, no, the, the Deacon Telephone Exchange in Canberra, no, that's a nuclear target. We'll all be uh, atomised. And we went, oh, that's great. These are not good conversations to be having when you're a young person. So for me, this was a moment for me to where I felt my future was coming back. And this is a moment that kind of transforming, I think, turned me from a pessimist into an optimist. You know, that's so funny that I had that same fear. I remember there was an interview with a Russian diplomat on uh, 60 Minutes and he was talking about all the uh, 
cities that would be a target. And I was there with mum, and I said to her, you know, are, are we all right? And she said, we'll be fine, we're in Adelaide. And then he, <laughs> he kept talking, and then he said, and Adelaide. And I was like, oh, fuck, finally we get noticed. This is bullshit. On the front page of the Tizer the next day, Adelaide noticed. Yeah, we're back, baby. We were going to deflect them with our insistence mm. of the way we pronounce Lego, which is correctly. So, <laughs> so you were going to uh, do a reading for us, but before you do, can I ask you, uh, there's two characters in this that I'm a little bit obsessed with, uh, La Boucher and her army of women. Can you mm. explain uh, to our friends uh, who this woman was and why she had this significance? She's a legendary figure. There's no evidence she ever existed, but Prague is unusual insofar as its legendary founder is a woman. She was a witch priest, uh, priestess, princess, named Labusha. And uh, the story that, goes, uh, that pertains to her is that she was standing on a cliff one day and she had the gift of prophecy. And she looked down in the valley below where the Vultava River is where, and she said, I see a great city. Its glory will touch the stars. And she told her counsellors to go down into the forest below. And she said, go down there and, and in the clearing you will find a man making the best use of his teeth at midday. And that is where we will found the city. So the courtiers go down into the clearing. They find three men building a house. Two of them are eating their lunch. But the third man is sawing a block of wood. Right. And that's their man. And they say to him, well, what are you making? And he says, I'm making a threshold for a house, which is a Praha in Czech, which is where Prague comes from. Prague means threshold. And, and it's such a beautiful name for a city because... Prague always feels uncanny when you're walking through it. And it takes a while to figure out why it feels so uncanny. And I think it's because it's that landscape we're given, that imaginative landscape we're given as kids when we're told fairy tales and folk tales, like Brothers Grimm stories. That's the landscape of Prague. And you have this sense of returning to something, like a place from your childhood you haven't been to uh, for a very, very long time. And she's amazing, isn't she? Like, she is just picking suitors that suit her. Like, she's going, yep, you'll do. Had enough of you. Swipe left. Mm-hmm. I'll have you. Thank you very much. Swipe left. You'll Incredible. do. I've broken you. Fuck it. Better get another one. Like, it's medieval Tinder with planks of wood instead of screens. Incredible. Incredible. Yeah. <laughs> Got to be really careful with the swipe. You end up yeah. with a... Anyway. Uh, <laughs> the other thing that I was absolutely fascinated with is the Habsburgs. And... These, this, this, this generation family, and there's all this interbreeding because they want to keep the money in their family. And I, I have two important questions for you. One, when does interbreeding start to feel like a mistake? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, when is it? Because they're doing it, and they're changing, and their faces are contorting, and like, there's got to be a point where you, you look at your kid and you go. Yeah, that's, like, too much. Like, so, so, d- someone go and date Jane. Do you know what I mean? Yes, that definitely happened. A lot of first cousins marrying double first cousins in the Habsburg family who came to dominate uh, uh, Bohemia and Prague for, for many centuries. And, and the weirdest of the Habsburgs was an emperor called Rudolf II. He was the Holy Roman Emperor. This is in the late 1500s, early 1600s, during the Renaissance, Northern Renaissance. And he was a strange, introverted guy uh, he lived in Prague Castle, and he he was no good at being an emperor. He used his time there to try and find the hidden secrets of the universe. He thought the universe, like a lot of scholars did at the time, was this incredibly beautiful puzzle, and that God, created by God, and God had endowed us with reason so that we could unpick the puzzle. 
And he had this chamber of curiosities of weird items he'd collected, gifts that had been given to him. He had a unicorn horn that probably came from Manawal. He had uh, the, oh, the Holy Grail, uh, caught the blood of Christ on the cross. He had his own menagerie of wild animals. He had several lions, tigers, on the premises of Prague Castle. He had a dodo from Mauritius, and he had a, he had a cassowary from New Guinea. Like, this is the 1500s. Somehow that was brought, brought over there. He had, his favourite pet was a lion called Muhammad that was given to him by the Sultan of the Ottoman Turks that used to curl around his feet. But, but the problem with um, old uh, Rudolph was that he never could quite afford to feed the lion properly. And this lion would pat around Prague Castle and occasionally sort of <laughs> have a bit of a swipe at the old uh, palace servants. And we know this because we can see the receipts saying, like, oh, we had to give... 200 ducats to the family of poor Yarn because he got mauled to death by old Muhammad the lion again. Oh, yeah, so, so, but eventually they, the interbreeding got worse and worse and to the point where they couldn't breed anymore you know, and they had to bring in other cousins from different branches of the family. And, and so th- my second question is what are the rest of the people thinking about this? Because if that happened now, like, like look how much fun we have talking about the royal family's ears <laughs> and this is so much more full on. What Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What are the people thinking as they are seeing these generation after generation of interbreeding? They, they believe, they were told to believe, that emperors were divinely ordained and right. they owed their jobs to God. God had made it all happen. But there does come a point, though, when there was one emperor in the uh, 19th century whose head became... It was, he was born with awful sort of deformities and uh, disabilities. He had a swollen head and looked perfectly strange. And, and um, when there was a... He was based in Vienna, and when there was a popular uprising, they said, your, your, your majesty, the, the people, there's an uprising. The, the people are storming the palace. He goes, they're not allowed to do that. <laughs> that was his response to that. So, yes, that became a problem after a while, but people would hardly ever see the faces of them. And if they did, they'd see a portrait where the, the, the big bulbous chin was maybe pulled in a bit, the funny nose was, was made to look fine. So no one was hugely aware of how completely inbred and weird the Habsburgs were getting. Yeah, I'm fascinated by that. Um, so I spent a lot of time alone. And uh, <laughs> so uh, you were going to uh, read uh, a section yeah. of the book? This is, uh, this is from a period uh, in the communist era when everyone was encouraged to conduct surveillance on everyone else. The point was to destroy trust between people. And you could never be sure 
when the secret police were listening or not. The ear. Three apparatchiks came to Prague one month for a party conference. After the first day, they sat up late in their hotel room, drinking and telling stories. The alcohol loosened their tongues a little, and they began to complain about the secret police. One of them hushed the other two and whispered, What if they're listening to us right now? The other two laughed, so the man decided to play a joke. He went downstairs to the hotel reception and asked the woman at the desk to deliver three cups of tea to their room in 15 minutes. When he rejoined his friends, he sat down and leant towards a vase of plastic flowers and said, Hello, Comrade Major. Could you have three cups of tea sent up to our room, please? His friends laughed, but when the tea arrived, they blanched, (laughs) made their excuses and went to bed. The next morning, the man went out for a walk. When he returned to the hotel, his friends were gone. He asked the receptionist what had happened to him. Happened to them. Oh, they've been arrested, she said. They would have arrested you too, but the Comrade Major really liked your joke about the tea. (laughs) The dread that one's conversation might be overheard was the subject of many jokes from that time. Some were long, shaggy dog stories. Others achieved a kind of pithy perfection. An American visits a Czech relative in Prague. How are things going, he asks. Oh, you know, replies the Czech. Can't complain. The secret police devoted enormous resources to keeping tabs on troublemakers. The dissident writer Ludwig Watzelik and his wife Marla discovered tiny microphones hidden in every room in their apartment. Their phone was bugged. At another apartment in the block was taken over by secret police agents to monitor their conversations. Thus, for 20 years, 20 years, they avoided discussing anything of significance out loud and wrote it down instead on flushable sheets of toilet paper. Wow, that's great. Round of applause for Richard Feidler. Thank you. Can you, um, one last question. Do you know what your next book is going to be? It feels like you've just released that. And it's like, so what have you got for us yeah. next? What have you got now? It's like, are we there yet? I've got a few ideas. I'm sort of sniffing around. I tend to like to sort of put a few ideas in front of me and uh, like, you know, sample trays of cat food and see which one yeah. I'm likely to, to go to and come back and forth from. Well, you've, you've uh, covered, you know, like Iceland and now Prague. Would you ever write about an Australian city? I might, actually. Yeah. Down the track. I've got one in mind, but I, yeah, I'm, I'm still sort of figuring it all out in my head. Yeah. It won't be the next book, but somewhere down the track. It's yeah. Logan, isn't it? It is, like, it is. <laughs> yeah, it is yeah. I can't wait. It's going to be thicker than this. Uh, big round of applause for Richard Fyde. Thank, Thank you. And uh, that's, uh, I think things are going pretty well, don't you, Adele? <laughs> yes, you're right, Justin, it's going very well. Our next two guests will be talking about improvisation. You know improv, it's that comedy that stand-ups hang shit on because they can't do it. <laughs> I can do improvisation, watch this. Can I have a room in the house, please? No, but you can stay in the stables. Jesus. (laughs) Rebecca de Unamuno and Rebecca Melrose are my two favourite Rebeccas after Rebecca Gibney, Rebecca the Book by Daphne du Maurier and Toadfish Rebecca from Neighbours. (laughs) Please welcome to the stage Bec de Unamuno and Bec Melrose. Melrose is really hard to say. There we go. 
Isn't that nice? Isn't it, isn't it nice to finally have your name pronounced correctly? It's, it's the absolute best. I'll never forget when I was doing a, a debate at the Melbourne Comedy Festival and Sean McAuliffe was the uh, moderator. And he came walking up to the podium saying, Dana Muno, Dana Muno. You could just hear him in the mic, Dana Muno, Dana Muno. He stood at the podium and then said, Rabaiku Dana Muno. <laughs> <laughs> Best gag ever. <laughs> well, you, you know, you sometimes have those brain cuts. Have you done a lot of MCing yet, Beck? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, have you have bit. you had that moment where I you... have, I have, I've had a moment where I um, actually visualised several items so I could remember how to pronounce this person's name. And when I got on stage, I, I slipped up and instead of saying something, I said scarf, like a totally random item. Just right, into my please welcome to the stage. <laughs> scarf, scarf, yeah. Wow. I, I, at the Melbourne Comedy Festival, you, you know what it's like. You, you're doing shows every night and you, you've done the Adelaide Fringe and maybe you've done the Perth Fringe and you're tired. And I was hosting the Hi-Fi Bar one night and it was... Uh, Pat Oswalt had been cloned oh, out. Yes, and yes. he was on I and uh, I was emceeing. It was a really good night. And I went out. And I know who Pat Oswalt is. I am a fan of Pat Oswalt. And I went out. And I have to be honest, my uh, opening before I brought him out was pretty tight. And I was feeling pretty good. And then I said, please welcome to the stage, Oswalt Patton. <laughs> and you know when you said it and it's like, oh, why did you do that mouth? Like I thought that we were in like... this together. And then I'm watching him walk on. And I thought, you know what I need to do? I need to go and stand inside the stage and I just need to wear this. I Like, this is my fuck up. I have to wear this. And what was great was he had jet lag, so he was asleep out the back. So he just heard part of his name and just came out and missed all of it. And that's what's called dodging a bullet. Right. Sounds a bit like what you'd register for for your wedding. You'd have the uh, Oswald pattern in China. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. I only bring it out for special occasions. So... And so, uh, we have been friends for a long time. And yes. uh, when I first met you, you had just won MVP at the World Improvising Championships. And so I'm curious, uh, how long had you been performing before you won that award? Uh, so we went over there. It was a team from Australia um, was invited to go over for the Just for Laughs Festival. And so I had started playing theatre sports. I don't know if you're familiar with theatre sports. A lot of people groan when you say it. Um, it gave me my start, people. Um, it's <laughs> and so I'd been um, doing that since about 1996. Yep. So I'd only been improvising maybe for five years. And uh, I'd started performing. We were at Belvoir Street Theatre uh, just down the road um, on Sunday nights because it was the one time that theatres were dark. So we'd have to imp- improvise shows on the set of whatever production was on at Belvoir at the time. And we worked on everything from railway tracks to, you know, stages like this. Oh, yeah. and just extraordinary things. But it was amazing. And so, yeah, and then it was five years. It was a whirlwind. Everyone thought, who are these weird people and where have they come from? And... Uh, and we played the Canadians in the semi-final and we beat them by point one. Oh, right. And yeah. then we played the Americans in the final and we kicked their fucking ass. Yeah. Yes. That feels good. So satisfying. Yes. It was good. I've got to say, you know, they've gone on to do things like be in the office and all that kind oh, of yeah, stuff. Oh, yeah, but what so, is? Yeah, whatever. Whatever. I'm a giant fucking bull. Yeah, and uh, a, a quick shout out to Linda in Florida who got up at 5 a.m. It's all the other Americans. Love you. Love you. We love you. Uh, So what inspired you to get into improv? Did you want to be like, was who you were watching on TV or was it seeing something live? Uh, I'd... 
I'd always, as a little kid, my parents keep saying to me, hello, there's mum and dad. Um, uh, my parents kept saying to me, you're a born attention seeker. So it was always that. And I would literally, <laughs> I would put on an outfit in the morning. My poor parents. I'd put on an outfit in the morning and then I'd get a good toy and put it in a stroller and I'd wander around the house but pretending it was the suburb that I lived in and I'd come up with a suburb name and I'd encounter my dad and he'd be fixing his truck outside and I'd say, oh Philippe, how are the oranges today? <laughs> and he'd just be like, Jesus fucking Christ, I'll fix the truck. Um, so there's a, and I would just put on these like elaborate scenarios. So I think inventing things was always something that I did. Right. And then it wasn't until I... I was wanted to be a serious actor. You know, I expected Niger and Whopper and VCA to all want me. None of them did. And I, I thought, oh, you know, stand-up. I'll try stand-up. And I was at Sydney Uni in a stand-up competition with Tom Gleeson, Sarah Kendall. We were all in the same year at uni. And, and I was just like, this is great, but you have to plan it. Right. You have to actually write jokes. Yeah. Now, I've got goon to drink. So, I don't know how much I can plan. And I watched every lunchtime at Sydney Uni. It was hosted by um, Rob Carlton at that oh, time. Oh, yeah. Theatre Sports. And I watched all these amazing performers going, that's incredible, I could never do that. And then week after week, I would start to think of my own scenario, my own response to a line that someone on stage said, or I'd think of a way I could play it. And a friend of mine said, we should play and I said, well, I don't know what to do. And he said, perfect. So I, by that stage when Adam Spencer was hosting it, and I'd come on and Adam would say, you're playing a subtitles. And I'm like, I don't know what that is. Right. And my teammate would say, uh, you speak in a made-up language and I'll translate. In five, four, three, right. two, one, in front of 400 uh, drunk Sydney uni students on a Thursday lunchtime. And if you did well, boy, did you know. Oh, yeah. Oh, you were the, you were it. You drink your goon for free all afternoon. Oh, yeah. And if it failed, oh, boy, did they let you know. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, we've seen glasses thrown. It was really, oh, it was yeah. like a real baptism of fire, but a great way to do it. And I just straight away went, this is the most exciting thing I've ever done. This is like putting on a pair of comfy slippers and walking around in a different environment. This is exactly where I'm meant to be. And so the thing that I'm really fascinated about is what is your goon of choice? <laughs> I'm a fruity Lexia guy all the way, mate. I love fruity Lexia. Oh, anything yeah. that'll fit on the clothesline so that you can play Wheel of Goon, mate. Oh, Wheel of Goon, mate. Yeah. Wheel of Goon. Ah, <laughs> oh, the suburbs. How good were they? <laughs> so good. I, I still do that. So. You still do that, yeah. Uh, you've got your youth. You can still enjoy the Goon yeah, now. Yeah. Even me mentioning it has just brought on type 2 diabetes. <laughs> so, so I'm, I'm curious to know uh, what's changed? What's the most obvious thing that has changed in the world of improv since when you first began to mm. where we are now? I, I think the level of respect it has, particularly in this country, has improved tenfold, even more so. Um, we were always considered as improvisers um, as the, the poorer cousins of actors and the weird relative you don't talk to of stand-up comedians. We were always this kind of ostracised, weird group. And... Um, <laughs> and I can see why people right. would think that because we think differently, differently to a lot of people. Um, and it was interesting how when you discover that difference that you sort of, you want to run with it. You just, you found it, you want it. It's got to be the kind of thing that you want to do. And and I'm rabbiting on now and I'm losing my train of thought. I'm having all these memories and flashbacks. Um, 
but it's um it was it's definitely become something that people respect as a standalone craft to what it was when I did it. We were always theatre sports, even if we were just an improv troupe doing nothing about theatre sports. You were always called a theatre sports player. Uh, that's different now. The shows like Whose Line Is It Anyway, yep. I think, made a, a huge inroads into that. And I auditioned for the um, the British version of right. that show back in the in the nineties, and it was interesting to see from that period on because they wanted some people that were you know unique in their improvising style, and so that meant you could then when I was doing theatre sports shows you could make a reference like you know the show whose line is it anyway and suddenly there was this nod of recognition or this groan of acceptance from the audience that they knew what it was ah you know ah we get it whereas for years we were saying you know they'd say so where are you gonna be when you say that and you go well we're not gonna say that because we won't we don't we don't know what we're gonna say yeah. we don't know where we're gonna stand and it's a TV producer's nightmare I've done so many pilots I've also shot a lot of pilots. <laughs> um, but it's it's interesting because people don't. That it was this unknown element, and that scares people when it comes to creativity. Whereas we are the kind of performers that give us nothing and tell us to create something, and that is the most thrilling opportunity. So I think the respect level here, in particular, and if you if I was to tell you that the likes of you know who watches Shit's Creek, is anybody a Shit's Creek fan? Yeah. yeah, yeah, and you're all like, yay, and we say Eugene Levy's so great, and so is Catherine O'Hara. They started as improvisers in a troupe called Second City, and that's how they started in Toronto. And and there's so many, Stephen Colbert, um, Steve Carell, Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, they all began doing what I did on a stage at Sydney Uni um, in the in the um, late <laughs> 90s. Yeah, and like and at, starting at the age of nine is amazing. I, it's right? amazing. <laughs> yeah, I improvised before I could walk. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, I'm curious, as an improviser, if someone who is thinking that they would like to give it a go, is there a core skill that you always need to keep in mind? I think you have listening. It's so important if you're in a scene with two other people and they are setting up something that beautifully by delivering this dialogue on stage and you're not paying attention to it and you come in and you completely ignore all the offers that have been made prior to you entering, you destroy the scene. So you've got to be able to listen to other people. Eye contact, oh my goodness, so important. And we know that just in daily communication. You make eye contact with somebody, you can make them feel suddenly at ease and they trust you. And that's what you want when you're on stage with strangers oftentimes, you know. I've got to tournaments overseas and you're meeting an Italian improviser who doesn't even speak English. Well, good luck, five, four, three, two, one. And just having that level of, of, um, of eye contact. And you have to, this is my biggest thing, you have to implicitly trust yourself and your ideas. Yeah. That's why stand-up comedians are terrible at improv because they just stand there and they wait for someone to stop talking and then they go, now it's my turn. And it has nothing to do with anything that was going on. Now, I don't know if you know this, but the reason I invited uh, Beck Melrose down here is that she's a really big fan of yours and she actually found uh, one of your trophies on eBay. And so uh, that darts trophy and you, you wanted to interview her about that trophy that she for some reason uh, was selling it's incredible I'm just I'm really stoked to be here I am such a huge fan of yours mm. um I you can actually, understand why. I can't believe I'm sitting there with you. Are you like, so exciting? Um, you're actually what inspired me to get into sports journalism. But um, 
So I just want to ask you a few questions about this. Um, so this trophy you got um, just a couple of months after that final that we'll never forget, the unforgettable Jamboree Darts final. Um, I just wanted to um, mm-hmm. ask you a few questions about that. So um, you you won over your your famous fierce rival. Um, uh, her name. Oh, her name was Betsy Big Bow. Be- oh, <laughs> Betsy Big Bow was hyphenated, so it was Betsy. <laughs> There was one half of it go through the door first, and the other half come back five minutes later. <laughs> Needless to say, I was nervous. I got all get out, because darts ain't usually my thing, you see. I just realized through a, a fit of rage one day when Billy Bob came home with another woman. Mm-hmm. It's true, it happens all the time. And he came home, and he just said to me, I'm leaving you for Cindy Lou. And it rhymed, and that shot me even more. <laughs> And I just, I just, it was like an impulse, like my hand just threw. And I had my acrylic nails. You see, I get my acrylic nails. They're real long. And I did that, and one of them just flew off and pissed Billy Bob right to the bed. I said, I got to throw darts. That's incredible. What a wonderful origin story. Such a wonderful origin story. I actually didn't know And that. I will apologize if my accent slips. I've traveled. <laughs> Well, I know you're very well travelled. And, and how many time had, how times had Betsy beaten you up until this point? Well, Betsy had beaten me every single time. And that was five in total. First time, I just did the whole thing with my eyes closed. I thought she was hopeless. Think about Betsy, big bow. It's <laughs> hyphenated. And the best thing about her is that she just, she, she'll just, she'll just nail you. She, she'll see an opportunity. It's like a saloon door. You see it like flapping a little bit on the hinge. You ain't too sure if you want to go in. You don't want to touch it because of COVID. And you don't want to do all that sort of stuff. So you just like, bang, you just enter. Pooh, wow. She was like that. <laughs> we hated her in my house. She was awful. We had posters up of her. We couldn't afford darts, but we used to throw forks at it. Me and my sister, we hated her. Oh, good. And you, yeah. Yes. Nice. So in, in the build-up to this big final week where mm. you finally took on Betsy and, yes. and beat her, what kind of tactics did you use to get her? I got real drunk. <laughs> I thought my eye-hand coordination gets so much better when I'm inebriated. And it's yeah. good. If you got five targets, you can just go, well, at least it's got to be one of them. <laughs> Incredible. Uh, but then you had your injury, uh, mm. that famous injury. I thought it was... I'm sorry. Are you okay? I promise I will not go across. <laughs> recently, but, you know, prior to March of 2020, you'd wear that bra day in, day out. Well, I was ready for the final throw, and all I needed was five. Can you believe it? Five to win. And I went there, and I got my reflexes on, and I drank five tequilas. And there I was standing at the board, and I waited, and I waited, and I threw that dart. And it was like everything went in slow motion. You know, like chariots of fire, but better. And everything was just happening, and it was right at that moment that the underwire for my bra, right by my left breast, because it was the left hand that I used, decided that that was the moment to pop itself right through the bra. Ladies, I see you're all going like that, because fucking hell, that hurts. And boom, it punctured my brassiere, and it punctured me. Oh, God. And the door was still attached to me. I forgot to let go. So it was a disaster. Well, this is, uh, I hate to finish on uh, such no, a traumatic um, story, but okay. do, do, you have, uh, do you have one more question for 
our darts champion. Yes, well, in that post-match interview at the final, um, mm. I, I still have the, the quote up on my wall um, mm. that you said, and I just thought it would be really inspirational to hear today mm. what you said in that interview. Mm. <laughs> I said, Kelly, can you handle this? <laughs> Michelle, can you handle this? Beyonce, can you handle this? I don't think you can handle this. Yeah, yeah, I could. I shook my jelly all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> all right, round of applause for Melrose and Nick Nahimamino. And uh, let's, let's check in one last time with Adele. See, Justin, I told you I wouldn't waste the lighting budget. Tonight's final guest is a musician and singer extraordinaire. Her band is called All Our Exes Live in Texas which does raise a number of questions. Does she and her bandmates only date within a very specific geographical region or have all of the ex-partners of the band members reached out to each other and formed a community in order to heal together from the devastation left behind by these singing tentstresses? If I had a band, it would be called all my hubbos live in Dubbo. Because I don't want to talk about that now. Please welcome to the stage the flame-haired vixen that is Georgia Mooney. Cheeky <laughs> bitch. Could you see yourself duetting, uh, duetting with Adele? Happily, happily, yeah. yeah. She'd bring something really extra to, <laughs> yeah. to all your music. Uh, thanks for coming along, and uh, yeah, you're looking great. Like you haven't been well uh, at the start of the year with with COVID and everything, so it's great to have Don't you here. So round of applause, yeah. No, yeah, now. Well, we talked about it on the podcast. It's we like did. We uh, we can discuss this, yes. and uh, you are going to uh, sing us a song tonight, uh, mm. and it's a it's a Joni Mitchell song, and I'm, I'm really curious uh, when like, when did the fandom for Joni Mitchell begin for you? Hmm, I think. I think it was it was it was definitely my mum who put me onto it, and I I just started um, singing lessons. And I, I remember saying to mum I wanted to do singing lessons, and at the time I thought at the end of a few weeks of singing lessons that then your singing teacher would give you a record deal, and that's how you got famous. Right. <laughs> and um, <laughs> did you want to be famous? Was that the reason you were singing? I think when I was you know ten, I wanted to be famous. Right. Now it seems. Quite awful, but, um, but uh, and I had to pick a song to sing for the singing lessons. And Mum gave me a CD of Joni Mitchell and said, "Let me have a listen to this and see if one of them sticks out." And and uh, the rest was history. And was there music that your mum suggested that you like? Joni Mitchell was great. Was there anything that she suggested that you just went, "Oh no, this is a terrible mistake." <laughs> Mum's got pretty good taste, I've got to say. She's in the audience, so um, it'd be <laughs> a shame for me to slag her off. Now. Well, I should have uh, checked before I decided to ask that question. Jeez, should have looked out there. You got any more Mrs Mooney questions? <laughs> uh, not anymore. And, um, so I'm curious, so you uh, you become a fan of uh, Joni Mitchell from, uh, from a young age. Did yeah. she influence your... Uh, approach to writing like I'm curious to know when you when you start to write your own songs mm. uh, who are you looking at who are you uh, trying to emulate are you trying to emulate anyone well I think of Joni as 
being kind of the master and I'm always trying to emulate her but also not too obviously. Um, but then I got a dulcimer and that's quite obvious. Um, <laughs> it's very Joni. But, um, Lots she... of people were asking me what that was yeah. and I was like, I've never even heard of that and then it came out and it was like, da-da, da-da. Um, yeah, this is a dulcimer. She, she played it quite a bit and it's so, it's really, I won it in a raffle. Um, but it's... <laughs> really? Yeah, I did. That is a, like, that is one of those rare moments where you go, fuck, good raffle. Great raffle. <laughs> Best five bucks I ever spent. Yeah. Um, you were expecting it to come out, it's made of different parts of processed meat. <laughs> yeah. It's like, none of this is sausages. <laughs> um... <laughs> But no, it's it's really beautiful and it's um well you hear hopefully I yeah. play it reasonably okay. But um Joni, she's yeah she's an extraordinary songwriter. I think I I listen to her for inspiration all the time. Particularly, I mean, in so many ways. For starters, she um she had polio when she was a young girl, and because of that, when she was older and learning guitar, her left hand was weakened, and so she used to tune the guitar or the dulcimer in all different ways and over over her discography there's about 57 I think different tunings and because of that she comes up with these really kind of amazing and sort of weird chords that take her melodies into really interesting places and, and she's got this voice that kind of floats over the chords like a ribbon on the breeze like she's got this gorgeous melodic voice that is so unexpected and so musical that I'm, I'm always inspired by that and also her, her lyrics are proper poetry you know it's right, this yeah. I think you can you know spend a lot of time listening to commercial radio and feel like I'm not writing enough about chicks and clubbing and stuff and then what, is, that, is that what's on commercial radio <laughs> I don't know I don't. that's okay I worked on it and I did not listen to anything that was said <laughs> he went la 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 yeah. la la yeah. Yeah. Adam um, Richard is here go up to him and say commercial radio watch him fall on the ground and start frothing oh no it's his trigger word <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah she sort of is the person I go to when I need reminding that you, you know to be have integrity with with lyric writing and, and and kind of not be worried about making hits. Yeah, and, there, and there's a real integrity to it, and she's always had integrity. What I'm curious about Definitely. is, if you were deciding that you were going to sell out, <laughs> what kind of song would you write? <laughs> what kind of song would I write? Yeah, would you go? Would you go to the club? Would you? Would you have a? <laughs> I'm so 48 and white, and. Uh, <laughs> Or would you, would you auto-tune? Like, I'm fascinated by songs with auto-tuning and how everyone's just completely into that. Because it's to me, it's yeah. like, if I want to hear auto-tuning, I'll put on a disco track and play some Daleks. Like, it's just not <laughs> for me. So I'm, I'm curious about how would you write a, a mainstream hit to kind of get into that place? Well, if I knew Hamo, I would be doing it. Not <laughs> um, <laughs> <must> be here. <laughs> Suddenly, this gig is a lot more expensive for me. So, fuck, this is a disaster. Why did I suggest it? Um, well, I, you're going to play us a song. I'm going to walk off stage because because you said that I could sit here, but I suddenly <laughs> felt like I would be, you know, Johnny Young after too many facelifts, you know. So. Uh, so Georgia's going to play us a song. Uh, round of applause for Georgia Mooney.
now, so. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. That is what I call in tune enough. So. Um, this is a song called A Case of You, which many of you probably will know, which is scary because it's, it's perfect as it is. And... Um, I think Joni's like, well, it's like Jeff Buckley, you're not meant to cover her at all. But So we'll see how we go, it's fine. Um, but this song is on her album Blue, which came out in 1971, which is, so it's nearly 50 years old, but um, still got it. Um, actually, that is a bit crap. I'm sorry, just talk amongst yourselves, right? Thank you very much to Hammer for having me. <laughs> That'll be fine. Okay.
Uh, that brings us to the end of our first live podcast uh, for everyone in the venue. Thank you for coming along and checking this out. Uh, for everyone at home, uh, wherever you are, I uh, hope everything's okay. To everyone in Victoria, hang in there. It, you're going to be out of it soon. I'm 99% sad for you. There is 1% of me that is wrapped that Sam Newman's still fucked off. But... Uh, <laughs> Linda in Florida, if you don't know who Sam Newman is, you are in a better world than everyone here. So, uh, can we have uh, a round of applause for all the staff at Giant Dwarf? They have done a magnificent job. We were talking earlier, like, we just had a 45-minute setup, and they are such a well-oiled machine. They got it all going. Uh, Tamora, who booked this, uh, if you can come along and check out shows here at this venue. It's an important space. It allows people to experiment with different ideas. It's also really important for young people coming through and finding their voices and we need as much of the arts to thrive as we can possibly help in these current times. Uh, I'd also like to uh, do a shout out to uh, Token Artists. Uh, thank you very much for all your help with setting this up. And this is a podcast, so this might be the first time you've checked it out, so if you want to check out the Big Squid podcast, please do, and if you would like to encourage other people who are like us to come and listen, that would be great, but not, if they're not like us, like, we don't want them, do you know what I mean? Like, I remember, the, I remember Eddie Perfect on Twitter getting abused by this woman because he was being political, and she's like, why are you being political? It's like, it's... Eddie, perfect. Like, he's political. Just why don't you just sing songs like on Offspring? And it's like, oh, you should never judge someone, but I did, and I hated it. So we don't want them. Let's finish uh, on a quote. This is a Christopher Nolan quote. You're never... 
my podcast. We're going out on Nolan. You're never going to learn something as profoundly as when it's purely out of curiosity. Everyone, stay curious. Until then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.